You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the president of Wiley Education Services, Todd Zipper. Hello, and welcome to An Educated Guest. I am your host, Todd Zipper, and today I am here with Dr. Paula Blanc, president of Southern New Hampshire University. When I think of innovation in higher ed over the last decade, Paul's name is one of the first to come to mind. Most people connected to the higher ed know SNHU's story, but for some context, when Paul took over SNHU in 2003, enrollments were at about 2,800. Fast forward to today, enrollments are approximately 170,000, with the vast majority of those being online students. You also have completely reimagined affordability and accessibility with the announcement last year of reducing tuition by more than 50% for your campus programs. You are disrupting the traditional higher ed model in such a positive way from many angles, I must say. We'll get into more of these details in a bit, but first I want to zoom out and talk more broadly about your personal journey. Paul, thanks so much for being here today. Todd, it's my pleasure. It's great to be with you. Excellent. All right, let's start. It's 2003. Online education is really just getting started. For-profit schools like University of Phoenix are getting most of the attention, and the not-for-profits were really nowhere near the scale they are today. How did you go about creating this incredible growth story? Clearly, you had a vision of what was to come. You know, it's interesting, Todd. Yes, I mean, I worked in technology. My dissertation research was at sort of the confluence of literature and literacy behaviors and technology, just when that was all kind of happening in the 90s. But when I get to SNHU, and you'll hear me refer to it as SNU quite often, so feel free to do the same. Um, when I got to SNU in 2003, I was looking at an institution in which every, everybody said, we want to get to the next level. Now, of course, people define that in various ways. I teach a, occasionally I teach in a program at Harvard, Judy McLaughlin's workshop for new presidents. So this is for all first-time presidents. And I often say to them, when you arrive on your new campus and your first time, first time in this role, think of it as being like at a high-stakes poker game. You're getting dealt a hand, and it's a hand you don't control. You're inheriting whatever this place is. It's brand, it's traditions, it's financial condition, you know, how it works, where it's placed in the landscape of higher ed. And like a good high-stakes poker player, you really have to play, you have to play your best cards. Don't spend a lot of time, you know, chasing an inside straight. It sounds like I'm a poker player, I'm a mediocre poker player at best. But don't, you know, do smart things and play your best cards. It's sort of the first rule of playing poker. In some ways, it's the first rule of leading any institution. What are my best cards? What are we good at? And where do I see opportunity? And in 2003, SNHU had a modest, there were about 18 staff working at it, a modest online program. But we've been doing it for a little bit. And while it wasn't large, and certainly it wasn't anything close to what we were seeing in the for-profits, I thought, this is a card we can play. This distinguishes us. Because at that time, the not-for-profits were not mostly in online. They kind of looked down their nose at it. Oh, it can't be as good. It's not the same quality. It's too weird. It's too different. It's the kind of thing that the not-for-profits are doing. And, and remember that nature abhors a vacuum. And because the not-for-profits weren't in the space, the for-profits rushed in, and at their height, they were educating about 12% of all American college students. They were huge. I mean, Phoenix was over 500,000 students. But I thought, you know, there is an opportunity here for us. What would it take to compete against Phoenix? And I think about it now, I was like, what was I thinking? Because we were just, we weren't even on the radar screen. We set out to ask that question. As a not-for-profit, how would we compete in that space? 
And then I was very lucky in that I had a lifelong friendship with Clay Christensen, who, as you know, passed away just a year ago, kind of the father of the sort of notion of disruptive innovation. And Clay was about to come on my board, hadn't yet, but I knew that I needed his brains and his, his, the way he thinks about the world. And we set out on his disruptive innovation playbook. So what are the things that happen? First thing we did is like, let's get it off campus. We're going to have to make this thing look a lot different than it does today. It's going to feel pretty strange to our incumbent organization. Everyone's smart and well-intentioned, but what Clay's research teaches us is that the incumbent organization will always treat that new disruptive thing like foreign tissue. You'll either want to spit it out or incorporate it in its own image. So I moved, the, I moved those 18 people to a new location in an old mill building in downtown Manchester. And we... We leased 10,000 square feet, and I remember walking through it going, oh, my God, what have I done? Are we ever going to come close to filling 10,000 square feet? We have 18 people. We are rummaging around the place. We then started to look at all of our systems. How do we do what we do today? What do the processes look like? And would that work for an online student? So one of the big mistakes I think we saw for a long time are institutions that did try to go online take all of their systems and processes that were built for on-campus and just try to port them over. That doesn't work. It's a fundamentally different audience. We put to work some of Clay's research that later became known and more popular later on as jobs-to-be-done theory, even though that's not the name we had for it. So the question we asked ourselves is, we know the job that 18-year-olds pay us for, if I can use that language. What's the job that a 30-year-old pays us to do if they're working full-time and they have kids, and now they're trying to come back and finish a degree that they started 10 years earlier? Those are very different answers, right? For that crowd, convenience is critical. They don't have much time. They have like little bits of time. So could we make things easier for them administratively? Could, you know, would we commit to asynchronous classes? If you tie working people to a schedule, it's really hard. If you tie poor people to a schedule, it's really hard. So this is the least sexy part of the story, but the first four years was getting all of the wiring and systems under the hood right. So that when we did start to market, we know those dollars would be put to good use. So we studied the for-profits and said, what of their practices do we like? And of course, what are the things we don't want to do because they got themselves into trouble? And we started to emulate that. And it was a lot of seat of the pants, so I don't want to overstate like we took Clay's playbook and it was perfect. It was like, nope, we were learning, we were making mistakes. So I think part of the culture of innovation is a tolerance for that. A kind of, I know it's become cliche, but a fail fast, like make your mistakes, learn from them, fix them quickly, and always, always, always make sure that you're taking care of students all the way through. So we became customer obsessed, if I can use that phrase. I know in higher ed, we're only supposed to talk about students, but we became student obsessed then, I'll say that. And we often say, we'll do everything for you, but take your courses. So it, this is a race without an end, by the way. Like, we can still be better. I mean, I just answered a student today who emailed me because somehow a, an important communication didn't get to her. Now, look at She may not have opened her email. That happens. But I'm going to assume it was on us. So we've got a team looking at it. And I think you just never stop working at that. So that was sort of the, that was the big picture. The thing that really drove our growth happened with the recession of 2008, 2009. Because at that point, we were ready and we were modestly starting to expand our footprint. We were doing some test TV marketing in places like Milwaukee and Oklahoma City. And we had planned to do a year of that marketing and see what we could learn. And the questions we posed for ourselves were, could we compete head-to-head -head against for-profits? 
where we had no brand recognition. Well, we had no brand recognition anywhere outside of Manchester, New Hampshire, and we chose secondary cities, if I can, no, no insult to Milwaukee and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, but we wanted to choose markets where we knew there was a big footprint for for-profits, and that's where we tried to market to see if we could generate leads and interest. Even though we had only done 10 weeks of that, there was good interest. And at that point, the recession was hitting full force, and we were looking at a budget deficit for the first time in years, And I went to the board on a fateful October day and said, we're projecting to run a $3 million deficit. I want to take a couple of million from our very, very modest reserves and see if we can maybe go after some online enrollments and offset this deficit. And if I get this wrong, the hole we're in is going to get deeper. But what happened, even though we had scant 10 weeks to base it on, it held. We started getting leads. We started enrolling people. We had done the hard work under the hood. We were converting enro- you know, leads into enrollments. And by January, I went back to the board and said, I need $4 million more. It's going really well. Maybe that first, maybe those first months were just low-hanging fruit. I don't know, but my gut tells me we can do more. We ended the year with an $11 million surplus, and we never looked back. I'll tell you that in 2012, we were number 50 in the Babson University list of 50 largest nonprofit providers of online degrees. We were number 50. Three years later, in 2015, we were number four. Those three years were exhilarating and a mess. It was a rocket ride. We had crates of computers, you know, ready to be unboxed and set up in the hallways. We were hiring 40 to 50 new full-time people every week. Like every Monday, it'd be another 30, 40, 50 people coming on board. And the question is, you know, how do you learn to scale? Well, we learn it the hard way by breaking everything. We still have people who remember the financial aid summer of hell in which we got it wrong and wait times were climbing and we were slammed by students on social media. Like, I've been on the phone with financial aid for 25 minutes and I still, you know, listen to terrible music. But we rallied and we got it squared away pretty quickly. I'd like to think that aside from the annoyance I just mentioned, students weren't hurt, but we it was not pretty. What I'm really pleased is that we saw a similar surge this summer during the pandemic where we shot up from 135,000 students to 170, which is where we are today. So 35,000 student growth in about the last nine months. And we hired over 630 people, full-time staff. Um, The system's held. We were resilient. Like, I think we, it was, it was a hard, hell of a way to learn, but we learned how to scale. <laughs> a good friend from the South who says there's no education in the second kick of the mule. So, like, the second time the mule kicked us, we were ready. We, we learned the first time. So, that's, that's really the story. It's so much a story of talent. I mean, I've been talking about systems and processes and marketing, but getting the right people, building the right culture, that was really critical. And that was a combination of, uh, I think, hiring a little unconventionally. So we hired people out of the for-profits who wanted to work in a not-for-profit setting. We hired people from outside of higher ed, people who knew how to scale, for example, from other industries like finance. And then we developed our own talent from within. And putting all three of those together was very powerful. That is just an amazing story. I sat through a lecture with Professor Tushman from Harvard. I think he worked with Christensen on some things around explore versus exploit. And I think you just defined to us way back in 03, this explore model of putting this team off campus, giving it separate funding, really brilliant and feels like a kind of a traditional startup that we hear about. One of the big things about higher ed is this idea of needing consensus, right? You've got students, you've got alumni, you've got faculty, you've got staff, you've got board of trustees, you've got accreditors. 
how did you go about knowing that disruption needs you to make quick decisions and take risk and have that risk tolerance? How did you go about getting so much consensus early on in this process to be so speedy in the market? Yeah, so I don't want to sound um, Pollyannish about it because there's still people today who, when I said, when I came in 2003, they said, you know, we want to get to the next level. I still have some folks who look at us today and go, this is the moment we were talking about. Like, what, what did you do? <laughs> like, what happened? Like, we weren't going to be right. So, so you know, I don't want to pretend that there aren't people who still wring their, don't wring their hands a little bit. But I would say the following things were true. And if you don't mind, Tom, I'm going to open the aperture up just a hair more and kind of say from the broadest perspective, I think innovation generally is harder than we sometimes think. There's a kind of narrative sometimes like, you're just not smart and creative enough. It's like, no, it's really about real innovation requires culture change, either to change a culture or build a culture. And I think innovation falls into one of three buckets. This is the way I think about it, at least in our industry. There are innovations that let you play by the rules of the game, but you improve your quality. So if you think about all the ways that technology has been deployed on our traditional campuses, it's remarkable. Like higher ed has a great innovation story. When I was at little tiny Marlboro College in Vermont, it was because of innovation and technology that my rural isolated students could have direct access to the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, it was amazing what we could then teach. And, you know, we didn't have to worry about counting volumes in the library anymore. Like, that's a great quality story. And innovate, and higher ed has a great, great narrative around it. The only problem with it is it almost always adds a lot of cost. It makes a, a strained business model even more strained. But it's good for students, and it's good for the institution. So innovation that lets you play by the rules of the game as you always have, but do it better. Then there's a second bucket, which I would call playing by the rules of the game, but doing it more efficiently. So this tends to fall in all the innovations on administrative systems, for example. I can remember in 2003, students at SNHU would still line up outside the gym. And if you had that one prereq you needed to graduate, like you got that four in the morning. So you get that early spot, right? I mean, it just sounds crazy now. It's like, you know, my kids, like when I grew up, I, we walked to school in barefoot, you know, it's like, what are you talking about? But that's what the state of systems look like. And, and now, of course, we've automated so much of that. We make it easy. We're not, I would say, by and large, in higher ed, we do not yet enjoy consumer grade, like, you know, the buying experience of Amazon. We don't have one-click registration, but we are a heck of a lot better than we used to be. So efficiency, still by the rules of the game. But then when you're trying to do something where you change the rules of the game, the third bucket, what Clay Christensen would call disruptive innovation, that's a very different playbook. And that playbook really does argue that in that case, you're going to struggle to get consensus, at least for a good long while. You need to separate out that team. My job in the beginning was to buffer. Like, I just got to get these people some breathing space and ask them to do the work very differently. So if you take a look at a lot of innovation, it happens kind of on the margins. So if you think about University of Maryland Global Campus, what used to be called UMUC, they didn't happen within an institution in the Maryland system. They were created as a separate institution. If you look at Western governors, you know, often linked, you know, often grouped with us in the innovation group, they were created out of whole cloth. If you look at the amazing job Michael Crow has done at ASU, ASU was the poor stepchild of that system, right? It wasn't the flagship R1. It was kind of the party school. And Michael's transformed it in this remarkable job. But, you, you know, and we were unknown second or third tier school in Manchester, New Hampshire. So all these innovation schools happened out at the margins. It's so much harder to innovate in an established institution. That said, we were able to get buy-in. As we got bigger and better, and we did need share stakeholders to support us, I think there are some things that helped. So one are incentives. 
So among the things we said to our faculty in the faculty senate is, if you give us more breathing room to bring more curriculum into the marketplace, you will do better. We will be able to make investments in the traditional campus that you've long sought and we haven't been able to afford. So that was kind of a carrot, and we and we made good on it. So you look at the kinds of things we did, people feel really good about it. And then we were able to improve our benefits and our investments in facilities and support of our faculty. We also, not purposefully, but there is a little bit of a carrot in here as well. So when we had that really difficult year in the recession and, and we were looking at a budget budget cuts, we were also looking at program cuts. And people were faced with, we might have to cut some academic programs. We may lose some jobs. Or you can bet on us, give us more support, allow us to bring more programs into the marketplace. And if we're successful, we will avoid that. So that was a kind of, you know, there's no one right answer to this because as Tolstoy said in Anna Karenna, I'm going to paraphrase here, he talked about families. I'd say, you know, all happy institutions are similarly happy, but unhappy institutions are unhappy in their own way. So your mix of governance, budget pressures, public versus private, I mean, all of these things impact. But generally speaking, governance is a hard one. And when I talk to my colleagues who want to move more emphatically into this space, the biggest challenge they often describe is it's very hard for me to get my faculty to be supportive in the ways I need them to be. So it's either grudging or it's highly controlled or they impose restrictions that drive up the cost of delivery, or they just don't want to see that. They fear cannibalization. That's a common one. If you take my program online, people will stop coming. And I was reminded, like, different audience. You're okay. Like, we're not going to, we're not going to, with you know, your support will not erode over here. But I wish I could give you a single silver bullet answer. It's all of those things play out in some way. Yeah, it's wonderful. It sounds like you, you communicated a lot. You brought people along and you showed you understood what they were solving for in their interests, and you gave them a vision to achieve that as well while you, you pursued this, this other innovation. That's great. So switching gears here for a second, I think the latest innovation that really has my attention, and maybe there are others you want to discuss we can get into, is that you are cutting on-ground tuition by more than half to between $10,000 and $15,000 per year. This is lower than many public options. This doesn't seem like your ordinary tuition reset, which a lot of schools have done. This seems like a real game changer. I know about five years ago, uh, I think it was Georgia Tech and Udacity announced this master computer science, which was about 60,000 or so on campus down to less than $10,000, a real disruption. And is I think become the leading, at least from a student perspective, and certainly with a great brand, leading in terms of number of students graduating each year from that master's of comp size. So it's clear that the market wants lower cost options that they can get. Obviously, online helps. This is different. This is around campus, but people want campus options that are affordable. So I'd love to hear about your thinking here because you can't just cut expenses that easily when you, you know, for an on-campus operation. You have buildings, you have a lot of expenses, you have faculty. So how are you doing this and what's your latest thinking here with this innovation? Yeah. So you're quite right. It's you can't cut your way to this goal. You have to more fundamentally rethink everything. So we start with no sacred cows, really, except taking good care of students, kind of our core mantra, if you will. But but everything else is up for grabs. I think, secondly, we really want it 
um, to your, the point you made, Todd, I just want to sort of reemphasize. We looked at the data, and what we realized is not only were students taking on much more debt, which we didn't feel good about, we had always served first-generation kids and worked them. I'm talking about the campus, not online. Working-class kids, first-generation learners, immigrant kids. When we looked last year, less than 7% of our, 7% of our student body was first-gen. Like, we had had the shift sneak up on us. It's like, what? Wait a minute. We're losing our way here. And even even if the kids we were getting were more privileged, you know, we online's success allowed us to reinvent our campus. It's gorgeous. So now it becomes more appealing. And I know it's weird, but buildings actually sell residential campuses. <laughs> you know, you build a new building and everyone gets excited and they want to come. But, and, and you know, look at lots of improvements, but that was the visible improvement. But on the other hand, even if they were more privileged, they were carrying a lot of debt when they left us. So we had planned, and and I had announced in the fall, pre-pandemic, so fall of 19, that we would, by 23, seek to have $10,000 degree options. And when the pandemic hit and we saw this, you know, just you know, stunning impact on unemployment, much more than the recession of 2009, when we saw those numbers, we thought we're going to have a lot of people hurting. And that's been borne out, as you know, Todd. For example, the last data point I saw was that 40, the in Title I high schools, so these are the poorest high schools in America, there's been a 43% drop in FAFSA completion. Like, it's debilitating in our underserved communities. And from a mission perspective, SNHU is always, always, always been interested in how we serve the 45% of Americans and their families who say they would struggle to come up with $400 for an unexpected car repair. Like, that's our student. And we thought, we're out of reach of that student, and they're going to be hurting. So in April, I guess it was April, earlier than April, maybe sort of March, April, we announced that we were going to move up that deadline, that instead of fall of 23, by fall of 21, we would have our first $10,000 options in the market. As we dug into that work, we went further and just said, look at, let's move away from merit aid. Merit aid has become a con game that benefits the privileged, takes money away, redirects money from need-based aid, and it's pretend, it's pretend uh, merit, right? It's discounting in so many, at least in our institution, but most institutions I know it's discounting. So let's get out of that game. Let's get out of the game in which we all know, right? We were sitting on the airplane and no one in any of the rows around us paid the same amount. That makes no sense to us. So so we said, let's take all of our, let's take our base tuition down to 15 and let's also work on the first 10K options. So those will be out in the market for the September, the first six of those programs. And then we'll keep adding those, adding to that list, expanding that catalog to get there, still working on it. So very much taught a work in progress. We really had to rethink the delivery of programs. And I would say among the core themes has been less classroom and more experiential. So more project-based learning, workforce-based learning, internship-based learning, getting students out into the world, the world as their classroom. So the faculty member becomes less of a conveyor of knowledge and an orchestrate and more an orchestrator of learning. We also looked at integrating, almost all these programs will integrate some number of online courses, which are lower cost for delivery for us. So that brings down the cost. And those are two big pieces of the puzzle. We will do this in part through scale. And this is a, 
this is a heavy lift because we're in the Northeast, where most of our campus-based students come from, and that pie is getting smaller. So we're making a bet that we can go from 3,000 to 4,500 students. So volume helps offset. Then we did look at cuts, and I have to give credit to our teams where the athletic department, for example, is able to come back to us unprompted and without targets and say, we can cut about 30% of our budget, and we can do it without hurting our support and services to students. We also got to leverage this very large online operation we've built. So we did a lot of centralization of services, which reduced the cost of delivering those to campus-based students. Let me give you one example, where we would typically have financial aid people sitting on campus waiting for a student to come by, knock on the door, and say, I have a question. I said, well, you know, for those 3,000 campus-based students, we do that. But for 167,000 online students, we do everything online. We do a great job. The turnaround times are terrific. And our campus-based people go home at 4 o'clock. We go to midnight with online, and most of our students on campus get the stuff done in the evening. So why don't we just leverage that? So we were lucky to have this big machine that we could leverage in various ways and go towards more of a matrix organization. So now campus is not a different, slightly autonomous organization. It's melded into the whole. So, so that's a long answer, but you really have to look at everything. So open questions. Can we go around the calendar? Should we think about a summer, right? So that's a hard sell. High school students who come to campus still expect to have their summers off. So can we incent them? How can we make the case? Can we build pro? Can we do more low residency programs where they come periodically? Can we leverage the campus for our online students? So we take the services and help amortize the cost of those services across the whole. I'll give you an example of this, and it's an interesting one that surprised me, but our international programming office, which has always been only based on campus, they're getting more and more interest from online students who want to have some kind of international experience. And, you know, if you're like me, you're always thinking, online student, that's a 30-year-old with, you know, two kids and a job. And sure, certainly there are a lot, but there are a lot who aren't. For example, and this, again, kind of snuck up on me because we're pretty good at data, but out of that 170,000 students, we now have 30,000 traditional age students studying online. Not the traditional profile of the working adult. These are young people between the ages of 17 and 22. So we need to better understand who they are, but I'm guessing some of that desire for, hey, I might not be able to do a whole semester abroad, but can I do that 10-day trip that I just saw online uh, that I read about that, you know, that the campus is doing? Can I get in on that? Can I go to Japan on that you know, business trip or that analytics group? So really kind of fun to think about. Yeah, I, I love how you started with the, there's no sacred cows, yet our North Star, which is the, the student that with $400 would struggle to make a uh, repair to their car. And that, I think it sounds like a lot unfolded from there because you're rethinking everything. That is just fantastic. Yeah, in every single meeting room at SNHU, whether it's on campus or any of our offices anywhere, every single meeting room has a sign. And the sign reads, are the decisions we made here today good for our students? Yeah, it's just awesome. So speaking of which, in terms of an educational model that certainly should should bring down costs, and I think it has followed by the example that Western Governors has done, I want to talk about competency-based education, which I know... SNHU has been doing a lot. So over the last decade, it's it's sort of this thing that keeps gaining momentum. And it's a lot about how to increase outcomes, how to bring down costs, how to drive accessibility, this sort of iron triangle of higher ed success. 
you guys have jumped into this area. I know with the College of America program and also uh, of late, I've been reading your Twitter posts around the global education movement, uh, working with refugees or people from other countries. Can you talk to me a little bit about what CBE is and how SNHU is thinking about using it to scale its model as well as maybe our peers in, in other sectors, uh, other industries for education? Yeah, so I think when you think about competency-based education, it really, in the end, has two questions that drive all of its design. And on one level, they're pretty straightforward questions. When you start to unpack them, they get really complicated really quick. But the two questions are, what are the claims that I make, I being an institution, a program, what are the claims I make for what my students can do with what they know? That's a competency. And the second question is, how do I know? So it's an assessment question. If you get really good at those two things, you've nailed CBE. You've nailed competency-based education. We took that a step further with our CBE program by pursuing something called direct assessment. And what direct assessment allows you to do is, theoretically at least, untether from the credit hour, untether from time. Because I think, you know, the thing that I'm so obsessed with these days is the ways in which time-based programming is inequitable for poor people. Because if you are privileged, you have lots of ways to make time, right? But if you're poor and you don't have a washer dryer in your apartment, it takes longer to have clean clothes. If you're poor and you don't have a car, it takes longer to fill the refrigerator. If you're poor and you don't have access to really good health care, you're waiting in longer lines to get access to health care when you're, when you're not well or when or your kid is sick. And you go down the list again and again and again. And yet we've built a whole industry that tethers people to being in a certain place, a classroom, at a certain time, a schedule. And it's pretty inflexible and it really hurts people for whom time is a precious and rare commodity. I remember meeting a student enrolled in our CBE program in Boston who came from the poorest neighborhood in Boston, single mother, no social capital to speak of, struggling to get by, has a 10-year-old, I think at the time an 8-year-old daughter with chronic respiratory problems. And when you looked at her transcripts before she came to us from two community colleges, which is what she could afford, and they're fine schools, as far as I know, fine schools, but she only had W's and F's. And when you looked at it, I said, well, something's wrong here. This is like maybe someone who's not ready for college or doesn't have the academic preparation, et cetera. But what it really was is that every time her little girl got sick, she missed a week of class. So she missed assignments, she fell behind, she missed the exam, and she could never get caught up. And if that happened early, she could still get out before the withdrawal deadline. If it happened after that deadline, she got an F. And she looked like a failure at college. When we put her in our CBE program, where there is no set schedule, it's self-paced, she could stop anytime her daughter got sick. There was no penalty, because as she said to me in this conversation, she said, I'm the schedule. And then her daughter would recover, she'd go back to school, and then she could start again. She was really smart, and she was hardworking. She raced her way to an associate's degree. So what was wrong? Was something wrong with her, or was there something wrong with the system that we forced her to work with? I would argue it's the latter. When we gave her a format and a structure of education that actually conformed its way around her, at least on a time basis— she could do really, really well without any compromise to the rigor and quality of that education. In fact, when you think about the credit hour, 
which is the Higgs boson particle of higher ed. It's the thing that's like the dark matter that holds the universe together, right? Because it's the way we unitize knowledge. It's the way that we apportion faculty workloads. It's the way we schedule classrooms. It's the way we measure progress towards completion of a degree, right? If you get 30 credits, 30 hours of time, you're now becoming a sophomore. If you have 90 credits, 90 hours of time under your belt, you're now becoming a senior. None of that has to do with how much you've actually learned. And if you're going to quickly say back to me, well, what about grades? Doesn't that account for the rigor? We all know that grades are deeply flawed in America. Grade inflation is rampant. If you take a look at the percentage of college students, how many get A's versus how many get A's 30 years ago, it's just skyrocketed. And it's not because students got a whole lot smarter. Right, We could talk about all the ways and, and look at, from general assessment practices, grading policies, grading practices are pretty weak, and any expert in assessment will tell you that. We could go on for some time on assessment, but what I'm really just so passionate about right now is that competency-based education actually doesn't measure learning by time. It actually seeks to measure genuine learning. It only works if you have rigorous assessment. And that's hard. That's a hard sell because it means people are going to struggle more. You can't slide by. You can't cram for the exam if assessment's done well. You're measuring actual student learning. But it allows us to start to rethink how we deliver education in much more equitable ways, I think. So I, I'm, I'm super excited about it. It also, you know, the hottest area in higher ed in many ways right now is the space between higher ed and workforce. And if you go to conferences like ASU GSV, or if you take a look at kind of what's dominating the discourse today, it really is about this place where they come together and where many critics would say we are misaligned. And the beauty about competency-based education, it gives us a common language with employers because employers think about competencies. They think about what are the skills my employees need? What are the things my people can do? What do they need to do better? What don't they do at all? And when you can have that, when you can start to talk that same language, you now have a common and meeting ground in which you can think about alignment in a very powerful and different way. The last thing I would say, Todd, if I can just add one piece, because I get this a lot, is that people say to me, well, that's great for vocational stuff. That's great for like skills-based learning. That's great like if you're trying to train someone to be a programmer. But you know, what am I going to do with philosophy? I'm a philosophy faculty member. What do competencies look like in my world? You're going to prove or disprove the existence of God? Like, what does that look like? And I was laugh. I think, you know, this is the issue because the humanities, which are under siege, and I came up as an English major, humanities, which are under siege, are actually associated with some of the most in-demand skills and competencies in the workplace. Critical thinking, meaning-making, working with human beings, navigating cultural difference, you know, logic models. Philosophies, in my view, has always been perhaps the most rigorous intellectual training there is in the academy. And there's a reason why BCG and McKinsey recruit philosophy graduates from Ivy Leagues, because of the intellectual training they get. So, Stop, you know, getting in this knowledge for knowledge sake nonsense and make a better case for yourself. And you and it's there to be had. I think competency-based education could actually save the humanities if the humanities could embrace it. Oh, that's just fantastic. So going down this thread of of sort of untethering from the credit hour, I know that SNU recently announced uh, a micro bachelor's or being part of the micro bachelor's program with edX which is a non-credit short course type format that you can use as a stackable credential to get part of an associate's or bachelor's degree. I'd love to hear about your thinking around this innovation and, and where you see the potential here. 
Yeah, I'd like to place it in a context because I think what's happening is a little bit like climate change. You know, when we're in a period of climate change and and when you're in the middle of it, it's kind of hard to know what's normal, what's new, and what's going to stay with us. So is this ridiculous windstorm I'm having, like, is it kind of a windstorm like I used to remember them as a kid? Or is it like, whoa, this is weather is weird, and I don't know. And if I have another windstorm a week from now, I think something's going on here that makes me a little unnerved. So if I use that analogy, if you hold on to that image for a moment, I think we are in a similar ecosystem change. A dramatic, it's not a slow evolution. There's something very powerful going on right now in our higher education ecosystem. And I think it has to do, in part, I think there are a lot of things going on, but your question about the micro-bachelors, I think, goes into this context, which is that we are seeing the emergence of a whole new set of credentials that aren't degrees. Like, the industry is built to produce a handful of degrees, associates, bachelors, masters, PhD. That's pretty much it, with a little bit of variation. And now, Credential Engine, about a month ago, revealed or reported that there are just under a million micro-credentials on the marketplace now. Now, look at it. It's messy. It's a new thing. So, we don't understand it very well. We don't have a clear taxonomy that everyone agrees on. And we don't have even agreed-upon nomenclature. So, micro-bachelors, micro-credentials, nano-degrees, right? Like, everyone's using this stuff intermittently. So, so, there's a lot of confusion. But that will get sorted out. Every new movement gets sorted out over time. You know, we needed Adam and Eve to name the animals, and we needed Darwin to put them in a classification system. So we're going to get we'll get our we'll get our version of that with the world of non-degree or sub-degree offerings. But this is changing how we think about what learning can be and what it should produce. And I think the the ecosystem change now was that we used to have an industrial age model that said, come out of high school, go to college for four years, have a degree that will serve you for the rest of your career. And maybe even with just one employer. And that just sounds laughably out of date. So now what we can start to think about is, come out of high school, some of you will go for four-year degrees, some of you will go for two-year degrees, some of you will go to campus, some of you will go online, and some of you will need something shorter because you need to get to work quicker because you don't have privilege. And maybe a nine-month boot camp that gets you a first job that earns you $70,000 is the smartest thing you can do. But know that you are going to have to dip in and out of our new learning ecosystem because at some point your boss is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, Todd, you are a great programmer. You've been with us for a year and a half now. I would love to make you a team lead, but you got some things I need you to learn. So let's talk about that and where you're going to learn them. So you dip back into that learning ecosystem and maybe that learning is six months of training or three months or three weeks, depending on what the boss said. But we have to be built to accommodate that. So in our conversation, we talk all the time about how do we give students just the right amount of learning at just the right time in just the right way? And what we think, what we believe, our thesis, is that degrees will continue to be very important. You know, it's only people who have degrees that say, oh, degrees don't matter anymore. Yeah, but what are your kids going to school? I still believe in degrees. But I do believe we get people there on pathways, and they need to be stackable. We don't want wasted learning. I don't believe in grazing models where, you know, we're just going to let students kind of pick and choose. Like, students need help with coherence and what will be valuable to the workforce. But I do think we're going to see a greater range of credentials. And we're going to see a greater range of providers. 
So it's going to be, you know, we just acquired Kenzie Academy a couple of months ago. It's going to be the Micro Bachelors. It's going to be Coursera. It's going to be Udacity. It's going to be um, Grow with Google. It's going to be uh, IBM Skills Build. It's going to be Salesforce Trailhead. I mean, right, it's going to be all of these providers are going to help make up the learning ecosystem. And right now it can feel fragmented, but I do think we're going to start to see we're going to start, I'm going to change my metaphor and go from a forest to a body. We're going to start to see ligaments start to link the parts. And I'll give you one example that I thought got less attention than it should have. When a few weeks ago, it was announced that 2U had, is partnering with Guild. And full disclosure, we're a Guild partner. I thought, this is interesting because now we're going to see this connection that doesn't happen very much. Blue chip, right? That mostly 2U's, most of 2U's Clients are kind of blue chip schools, blue chip schools who don't ever care about talking to employers for the most part, no matter what they say, is now working to move into online. Well, that's a big jump into a space they have not traditionally been comfortable with. But now with Guild, they start to build another connection to workforce. So now you've got blue chip to online, to workforce intermediary, to employer. And that's a new ligament. That's a new, new sort of piece of the body, right? So... So I think we're seeing all around us kind of really interesting ecosystem plays. And, and the world is changing. And as we look at a new generation of students, Generation Z, we're gonna make, I'm going to make broad generalizations here, but we did a series of interviews with them, and, I did, and they weren't in the same room. So this was like in the, their collective headset. The phrase that they almost, almost all of them used was, I love learning. I hate school. Well, what do you do with that? And what do you do with a world of, you know, there's just recent research shows people want the following things. I want skills-based offerings, laser-focused on an in-demand job, in a shorter format that I can afford. Well, look at how much of that sounds like traditional higher ed. Not much. <laughs> it's not what we're good at. So I think the challenge to incumbent higher ed will be, how do you think about your place in the ecosystem how much of that do you want to do? How much of that can you build yourself to do? And how much do you partner with others to be a player in that space, but perhaps not the dominant player? And in the end, I do think traditional institutions start to lose their monopoly over the whole. And I think that's probably a good thing. Yep. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned Google and IBM. There's Amazon, Microsoft. We're talking about many trillions of dollars of market cap between those companies. They're all offering training programs. How do you think higher ed should be thinking about this right now as a friend, as a competitor, somewhere in between? It's kind of all, like you said, it's, it's, we're not sure what this windstorm looks like right now. Yeah. So I would say the, the following, right? They're all doing training because they're struggling to fill thousands and thousands of positions that they wish they didn't have to spend a whole lot of time and money filling. So that's, there's an expediency in that work. But the benefit of that is that they're going to show us really interesting ways to do that work. Like, I love looking at, we, we talk to all of them. So we're in conversations with all of those players, as many are, to see what we can learn. I think when we talk about the full breadth of learning, it's way more complicated than being able to deliver content in cool ways. So I want to be careful because I don't want to sound like I'm, it's not a criticism of what they do, but they're only doing part of the learning equation. Because what we know is that in the end, so much learning is relational. And the powerful relationship of an advisor to a student or a faculty member to a student or a team of people to a student, I mean, that's critical. 
And we also know that they are taking a narrow view of what they're trying to do. So they're playing for a credential, but not they're not trying to own the ecosystem and they're not well built for it. That is, you know, if I'm Amazon, I'm really, really, really good at giving you frictionless buying for goods. Not that great at services yet. Haven't shown any evidence of that. And when you're stuck, you ever try to call Amazon with a customer service issue? Not that great an experience. So I don't think they're like, they're not going to like swoop in and all of a sudden they're going to replace higher ed. I just think that's sort of crazy. But I do think we can learn a lot from them. And I think there are amazing opportunities to partner with them. So we partner with Salesforce, for example, so that students who complete Salesforce certificates earn college credit from SNU. Like, great thing. That's a great partnership. And if that gets those students on a pathway to a degree, while Salesforce's certifications get them a job in the more immediate short term, that's a great combination. And there will be lots of folks who see them as an existential threat. I don't see that. I think in an ecosystem, when you bring in new elements, everyone else has to shift. It's like a dance. These are new elements. How we shift around them what becomes symbiotic, what becomes parasitic, and what becomes displacement? That's the interesting question. Yeah, fascinating. Switching gears to another topic, but I think one that that is close to, to what you're focused on. J.P. Morgan Chase announced in April it is launching a community-based hiring model in Columbus to help remove barriers for qualified people with criminal backgrounds to secure employment at J.P. Morgan Chase. The firm also joined a group of 29 major employers and national organizations to launch the Second Chance Business Coalition as part of its commitment to give back, give people with criminal backgrounds a second chance by supporting their reentry into the workforce. How should higher ed think about this? We know the data, I think, is pretty conclusive that recidivism rates drop dramatically with a proper higher ed, uh, higher education, and it doesn't seem like there's enough being done here, whether it's even getting internet connections in a lot of cases, seems like a challenge. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this huge topic. Yeah, so it couldn't make me happier. You're absolutely right. The research is unequivocal. There's nothing that comes close to the impact on recidivism that education provides. Changes everything. It's interesting. My good friend, Dennis Litke, one of my favorite educators in America, founder of the Metropolitan School in Providence, who does a lot of work now, created a new college called College Unbound, does a lot of work with the incarcerated and the recently released. Dennis would also make the point, it's not just about the fact that they have new learning and skills. It's more existential. You can walk through the world as a felon or you can walk through the world as a college graduate. You walk through the world differently, depending on which of the way which way you answer that question about tell me about yourself, right? It creates hope, it creates belief, it creates aspiration. So the good news here is that this conversation is happening in a much broader rethinking of criminal justice in the United States, of our prison system, certainly the structural racism that's baked into our judicial system, which wreaked havoc on communities of color. So your question then is, okay, that's true, Paul. What can we do about it? So one is Second Chance Pell. We work in a regulated industry, and these are students who will have little to no resources. So they're going to need the financial help. Uh, There's no such thing as free education. We could fund it more aggressively, but I don't know how much appetite there is in the country. The challenge in scaling is that this remains quite local right now because every prison is different. Every warden is different in their attitudes. The level of access to technology, which is better than it was five and 10 years ago, is still highly uneven. 
So that's just going to be an ongoing impediment to national programs of scale. But governors have the ability to get statewide scale. And that might be the place where we can move from the highly localized to something that at least allows me to go into, you know, a state like Ohio, which has a pretty progressive approach to this question and to get at this work. So I think those are the the critical pieces. I'd also say it's, yeah, it's important to think about education behind the walls. But Arnie Duncan will tell you that 70,000 young people move through the Cook County judicial system every year, and it's a revolving door of going in and out. So the recently released is almost as powerful a question as the recently in. And if we can do more to receive students when they're coming out of prison and get them into programs immediately, you can try to break that, that sort of revolving door back in and out of the system. There are schools doing remarkably good work here, by the way. I mean, Bard's probably one of the best examples, but there are others as well. So we've talked a lot about SNU's great accomplishments. Part of innovation, of course, is grappling with challenges. You talked a little bit about some of the challenges you've faced over the last two decades. What are your, you and your colleagues grappling with right now? Yeah, so one is that scale. So we got really big. Remember I said 18 people that we moved to a location downstairs. Now we think thousands of people distributed around the country, a new operations center in Tucson, distributed workforce, et cetera. And I think one of the things that we realize is that as you scale, spans of control get more narrow because you get more specialized. We become more bureaucratic than I'd like. It takes us longer to do what we used to do, you know, in six months may take us 18 months now. So we're three times, two times slower, three times slower in some cases. So we're having a, we're spending a lot of time in how we think about that and how do we sort of break that up a little bit and get back some of our agility and fleet-footedness. I think another is we are moving emphatically into that non-degree, sub-degree marketplace, but we're not built for that, and that's new to us. So this is new territory we're trying to navigate. We're trying to move into more international and trying to understand how to best do that. And, and of course, in a pandemic in which the globe's inequities are amply on display, that becomes harder. We're trying to do work in India right now. India is, as you know, reeling. So how do we, how do we think about that? Um, how do we move out on that space? And then I think one of the this is a, at least super interesting to me, and I'm probably driving our people crazy. But I'm really interested in this question of how we move out of higher eds, and even ours, as innovative as we are, traditional siloed hierarchical structures to be much more, less top-down, much more empowering of our people at every level. And we work with the Institute for the Future out of Palo Alto. How do we become more of a shape-shifting organization that's much more quickly responsive to both opportunity and threat? Because the world comes at us faster now. Both good and bad, it comes at us faster. How can we be more responsive to that? And how, and I think part one of the things that gets in the way is bureaucracy. So, you know, everybody in my place is reading Humanocracy. I don't know if you know that book. It's excellent. Uh, they're reading Unleashed, another excellent book. Uh, there's a new class or, or, or sort of uh, area of literature emerging about how to rethink our management leadership practices. And, and it starts with me and my team. Like, I've had to learn to lead differently in these last couple of years. And learning's hard. Like, it was a good, humbling reminder to me, like, it's hard. And we're still, some days we get it really right. So let me just give you, let me make this concrete so I can give you one example, Todd. After George Floyd's murder, 
When George Floyd was killed, we created a social justice fund. We put aside $5 million to look at three questions. What are the real struggles for our students of color who need help now, like emergency aid? What does it mean to be an employee of color at SNHU? What does it mean to be a student of color at SNHU? We have 30,000 students of color online. We're arguably larger than, I think, any HBCU in the country, and maybe the largest minority enrollment. So when we look at those three questions, the way we would have taken those $5 million in the past is I would have called in our chief equity person, a diversity officer. We might have brought in some consultants. My team would have got together and we would have said, okay, we've got all our best thinking together. This is how we're going to spend the money. And everyone would have felt good about that. Like the whole organization would have said, that's cool. Like that's a response to a terrible thing that happened in our society. And they would feel good. But we did something different, right? So we thought, wait a minute. That's top-down again. That's us getting back into the old habits. So what we did instead is we created three communities of practice, one for each of those areas. And what we said is that you get to serve on a community of practice, and we'll train you about what it means to be in such a group, not by dint of your position in the organization. That doesn't get you a spot at the table. What does? Recognized credibility. Don't care what your job is. Do you know? Do people respect you for your thinking in this area and your demonstrated passion for the work? Don't tell me that you're just recently woke. Like, I don't care about that. Like, do you have a track record of doing this work? And when we did that, now in those rooms, each is 20 people, you've got this incredible mix of people from across the organization. And what do we know? The obvious. There's a lot of smarts. There's a lot of creativity all the way down through the organization. And when you give people that opportunity, they're going to tell us, they're going to tell management how we're spending $5 million, not the reverse. They own it. It's empowering. The organization feels it. The system owns it now differently, right? That's a day when we get it right. And then there are places we still get it wrong. But I think if we can do this in an industry in which hierarchy and rigidity and expert culture where everyone gets status by being the smartest guy in the room, where we can get leadership to start saying, I don't know, and what do you think? If we can do that, I think it really sets us up to, it gives us an incredible competitive edge. Yeah, that's great. A couple more questions for you here. Have we left any innovations off the table that you have not spoke about, whether it's something you're doing at SNU or elsewhere that is fascinating to you right now? Because clearly you're always kind of getting a step ahead of the game here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people are going to be in the spaces that I mentioned to you, but certainly machine learning and AI, super interesting for us with such a focus on the human, like that we really plant our flag on student success. It's the question of how do we use AI, machine learning, technologies of platforms like AdmitHub or others, where do we use that where it's most appropriate and make sure that we're not trying to use it where human interaction is critical? And knowing the difference is hard. So really understand. But I think that's a really interesting one. You can't see it over my shoulder, Todd. You can see where I'm sitting today. But I got a set of Oculus VR goggles, which I'm having more fun with. And I think, this is transformative. Like, I just I just did a trip the other day through the capillary system with white and red blood cells coming at me. I was ducking and almost fell off of my chair. And I think, you know, this is, this is transformative and it is transporting. So I think, you know, VR has been around for a while, but we're doing some really cool work. I think the world of games, which combine the two. So I'm not a gamer and I'm 63 years old, but I spent more time than I care to admit on games this, uh, this pandemic, really trying to understand what it is about them. And I think, you know, I wish all learning could look like great games because I would look up and go, oh my God, I just like wasted I shouldn't say wasted. I just spent two hours and I felt like 10 minutes. So I was engaged. 
immersed. And when I broke through, like when I actually grasped something and figured out, oh, the, the endorphin rush of that's like, if all learning looked like that, students would be crazy. No one would say, I love learning. I hate school. They would say, I love learning. Give me more of that. So I think those are all super exciting um, to me. And then, you know, project-based learning, experiential learning, everything we're coming to know about the way people want to learn today. These have been around for a long, long time. But I really am so excited about thinking and working with our faculty and our staff on how do we really invigorate those models to be powerful and also bring down cost and increase access. That's great. Two final questions. I know you have a book coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I do, and I can send you a link if you're interested, because I'm super excited. It, um, I wrote it during the pandemic. It's going to be published by Harvard Education Publishing Group. They just sent me today a link. So the pre-orders are alive, even though the publishing date's October. The pre-orders will go out in September. So it's a long ways away. But uh, it's called Students First, Equity, Access, and Opportunity in Higher Education. And it's really looking at some of the things we talked about today, the way our current system really does leaves too many people behind and is not built for that student profile that I mentioned to you. You know, it's the, it's the equity issues of people who want higher education, who have dreams for higher education, but rather than finding that education is part of their solution for their life, rather than being the kind of engine of economic opportunity it was for me, it's actually become part of the problem. And that that's heartbreaking. I love this industry. You know, and I was a first-generation immigrant kid who went to high-quality, affordable public colleges first, and it changed my life. And I could pay for it working construction in the summer, which is what I did. I had no debt to speak of. That's impossible. A kid could work two jobs every summer and not be able to afford college, right? And $1.7 trillion of debt is an incredible burden on our students. So it breaks my heart that for so much of America, higher education is now cast in the role of villain as opposed to as opposed to the solution that lifts them up. And that's what I want to get back to. And that's what this book is about to some great extent. Well, good segue to my last question. I asked this of all my guests. One of our core values at Wiley is learning champion, which is the definition should be fairly self-explanatory. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? One of the biggest is somebody I mentioned earlier, and I was, you know, one of the great sadnesses of this past year was losing Clay Christensen. He was a friend of 40 years. We met playing basketball in a gym in a church gym in Cambridge, Mass. on early Saturday mornings. I like to th- I used to remind him all the time. I knew him before he was famous. He was a, one of the best teachers I know. He was a gentle giant of a guy, and his thinking, his his handprints are all over what SNHU has built. He was a tremendous influence for me. And then the second one is a person I won't mention his name, but he's somebody we brought in to look at the work we're doing at SNHU on a very specific project. And he asked for an hour of my time. And he said, this is out of scope. This is not something you asked me to look at. But I've spent so much time in SNHU that I can't help but have noticed this thing that I want to share with you. And he came in and he said all kinds of nice things about SNU. And he said all kinds of nice things about my leadership and about my people and, and, and their sort of you know trust in me as a leader. And then he said, but you're not creating leaders. You're failing them. I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, I was like, and, and, and he talked about this kind of command and control world in which the answer to so many questions, hard questions, was what does Paul think or what does Paul want us to do? And he said, if they keep coming to you and you keep answering that question, they're not getting any smarter. They're just taking orders. 
Do you want leaders or do you want order takers? And it really put me back on my heels, Todd. Remember I said to you, like, learning to be, learning to learn again is hard. So I'm learning to change my leadership practices. And some days I'm an A student. Some days I think I'm a D student. So I've got to continue to be better at it and work at it. But, but he, I owe him a great debt of gratitude. And, you know, when you're in your role or my role, it's a gift when people will come speak truth to you in that way. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for your time for speaking with me today. I know I'm inspired. I'm sure our listeners are too. I enjoyed our conversation so much and what you're doing to revolutionize higher ed. So until next time, this has been an educated guest. Thank you so much, Todd. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to an educated guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley Education Services, please visit edservices.wiley.com.